Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, December 11th, day 66 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our Arab Affairs reporter Luca Pacchiani and environment reporter Sue Sarks. Hello to you both and happy Hanukkah. Good morning. Chag Sameach. Hi, Amanda. Good morning. Happy Hanukkah. Yesterday, the Shin Bet security agency published footage showing the interrogation of former Hamas communications minister Yusuf Al-Mansi. We'll hear what he said about Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar, as well as potentially shifting levels of support for the terror organization in Gaza. Sue is here to speak about the environment impact of the war, including the idea of flooding Gaza's terror tunnels, and we'll end with the harrowing and heroic story of Oz Davidian, who made 20 trips into the supernova rave to save partygoers from the massacre of October 7th. All this and more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. As of this morning, 101 IDF soldiers have fallen during the ground operation in Gaza. Hezbollah in the north claims a similar number of operatives have been killed, although the IDF believes that number to be much higher. In the Gaza Strip, as casualties mount, we are hearing reports that Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar has lost Gazan support. According to testimony from former Hamas communications minister Yusuf Almansi, people in the Gaza Strip say that Sinwar and his group destroyed us. We must get rid of them. So first of all, Luca, can you tell us who is Sinwar and how did he come to power? So uh, Sinwar uh, was born in the Khan Yunus refugee camp in uh, Gaza. Um, he uh, became uh, known as the butcher of Khan Yunus because he used to persecute and execute um, people that were sus- suspected of collaboration with Israel. Um, he was in Israeli prisons for about 22 years. He was released with the Gilad Shalit uh, deal in 2011, and um, he was elected as uh, head of uh, Hamas in Gaza in 2017, um, replacing uh, Ismail Haniyeh, who then moved to Qatar, and uh, he's been ruling the strip ever since. So again, he's still known as the butcher of Hanunis because of uh, his uh, brutality. Uh, both against his own people um, and against um, Israelis. Uh, And he's been hiding in tunnels tunnels ever since the war started two months ago. So his house was recently destroyed, but we don't know his whereabouts. Okay. So in terms of support, even prior to the war, on October 6th, there was a survey that was conducted by the Arab Barometer Survey in partnership with the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research. And it had really startling finds, in my mind, 
ahead of the war. What did this survey conclude then? So exactly. So the results of the survey were published one day before the Hamas onslaught. And uh, over 40% of the people said that no trust in the Hamas-led government whatsoever. And a little over 20% said not a lot. So that means altogether around 65% or two-thirds of the Gazan population had no trust in the Hamas-led government. And do you think, Luca, that since the war began, since the events of October 7th, that the support for this leadership and for Hamas in general has grown, shrunk, remained the same? Any indication? So, I mean, it's fair to assume that given that a lot of people have lost their homes, have had to flee, have lost their loved ones in bombardments, the support has probably not risen. I interview Manara Sharif, um, a girl who used to live in Gaza. She's originally Syrian, um, and she has some very interesting insights in what's happening in Gaza. She still has a lot of contacts there. She's even provided me contacts of people to interview in the past. And she said that about only 25% of the people in Gaza are directly involved and benefit from the regime, either because they're directly Hamas members, fighters, or because they work in the um, Hamas-run public sector or security officers. But 75 of the population, or three quarters, um, have no uh, support for Hamas um, at all. That they don't support Hamas and Hamas isn't supporting them as well. So that is the majority of the country is not supporting Hamas. At the same time, it confuses some people around the world that there has been no real uprising against them. But actually, the woman you interviewed did participate in some uh, grassroots movements that eventually got her jailed and kicked out of Gaza. Explain what happened when she was still in Gaza. So ever since Hamas came to power in 2007, there have repeatedly been uh, waves of um, um, protest movements against Hamas that would uh, almost uh, like inevitably uh, be repressed. Um, and she moved to Gaza in 2017. And one year after, there was one of these protest movements uh, under the slogan, We Want to Live. Uh, and she said it like gradually people started to shed uh, the Hamas narrative. Uh, women started to take off their hijabs. People started to um, travel out of the strip more. Uh, obviously, there's no alcohol and no cinema in Gaza. So still, I mean, there's the, <laughs> the living conditions haven't drastically changed. But she saw that there was something in the air. Uh, and this has happened regularly ever since 2007. She was part of a movement that um, sought to create contacts between Gazans and people on the outside um, uh, through um, Skype and Zoom uh, video chats, uh, including with Israelis. Uh, there was one uh, line of events called Skype with your enemy, uh, where they would uh, get groups of Israelis and Gazans together, also during Corona, where everyone was under lockdown and talk about you know their lives. And she went to jail for three months because of organizing one of such events. Uh, she was then released and hasn't been back to the Gaza Strip since, but some of the people that organized it with her were in jail for six months and some of them also under um, solitary confinement. She wasn't just released, but she was deported from the Gaza Strip and hasn't been back since, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay, so I assume she's still in touch with people inside the Gaza Strip. And what are they telling her about support for Hamas or just li life in general? So obviously, uh, as I said, a lot of people have lost their homes and lost their uh, loved ones, have had to flee. Um, so they're obviously not happy with uh, what Hamas is doing right now. And they also see that Hamas has been treating the hostages better than it treats its own population. This is a comment that I've seen repeatedly on Gaza social media. 
you know, you see all these hostages come out, uh, you know, uh, showered and properly fed, and these people here are starving and living in tents. So <laughs> what's the deal? But also she said it's, it's very hard uh, to imagine that there can be an organized protest or uprising against Hamas uh, because, well, people cannot organize because a lot of them had to flee their homes and they're living in encampments. Uh, they're just weak. You know, they don't have food or water and basically all their days spent trying to find, you know, means of survival. Um, so uh, we, we see uh, more and more also people uh, speaking on camera against Hamas, uh, even on Al Jazeera. But she said that people just don't have the strength or the coordination to stage an uprising at this point. What do you make, Luca, of the images that we're seeing uh, increasingly about people um, surrendering, uh, the men who are surrendering? And of course, they're stripped down to make sure that they don't have any kind of bombs on them or any kind of uh, booby traps. But do you see this as a growing trend? So by the IDF's own admission, um, uh, not all of these people were Hamas fighters. Uh, some of them were just civilians that uh, stayed behind. And th these things were mostly from the north of the Gaza Strip. Uh, but definitely it's fair to assume that uh, more and more people, they don't have support from the Hamas Central Command. Uh, they don't get, uh, you know, ammunition, food, whatever they were receiving before. And there's no point for them in uh, continuing to fight. And uh, as Netanyahu also said in a video message, uh, Recently, you know, don't give up your lives for Simwar. What, what has he done for you? So I think we'll be seeing more and more of these scenes in the coming weeks. Okay, so we've talked about the lack of support for Hamas. And the real question is, how did the people of Gaza view Israel at this point? So uh, my friend said uh, that a lot of people in Gaza, the 75% that are not directly involved with Hamas, would rather live uh, under Israeli rule uh, than Hamas rule. Um, Again, uh, over half of the people in Gaza don't know any rule other than Hamas because they're below the age of 18. Um, Ham the Gaza Strip is one of the highest fertility rates in the world. Uh, so a lot of them don't really know anything about Israel other than it has been enforced in the blockade since 2007. But some of them do have memories of the times when Gazans and Israelis used to have um, exchanges. And I think at this point, uh, they, yeah, again, they would much rather have to deal with Israel than, than Hamas. Okay, let's uh, switch subjects before I let you go. Now, in Cairo, the small Jewish community has decided to actually hold off on celebrating Hanukkah publicly in one of the city's synagogues, which was refurbished recently, if I'm not mistaken, due to the war in Gaza. What are you hearing from this very small community there? Right, so the Jewish community in Cairo numbers about five people, all women. Uh, so it's a very, very small community. It used to be about 80,000 uh, until the early 50s. And then because of persecution, because of wars between uh, Egypt and Israel, almost all of them had to leave. I hear also there are some living, you know, undercover. They're Jewish, but they don't want to reveal their identity. But anyway, so these five uh, members, uh, together with uh, expats, uh, Jewish expats who live in Cairo and uh, foreign diplomats, they've managed to put together a small Jewish community, at least to celebrate the holidays in recent years. And thanks to the help of the um, Egyptian government, they've managed to refurbish also some of the ancient synagogues. Uh, one of them is the Benezra synagogue dating back to the uh, 9th century. 
Um, so they, they uh, celebrate at least the major holidays. Uh, they did last year, uh, and it was covered by international press. Um, but this year, they say that the anti-Israel sentiment and anti-Semitism on the Egyptian street is really too high. Um, there have been a lot of protests in support of um, uh, Palestinians in Gaza, uh, at least one of them under direct incitement of uh, Egyptian President al-Sisi, who called on people to go on the street. So they said it's not the right moment to, to do anything public for the holiday of Hanukkah right now. Okay, Luca, thank you for all your updates. Thank you. We'll go to a short break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Siwi, thank you so much for your patience. Last week, you wrote about how environmental experts are calling on the defense establishment to carefully weigh the long-term environmental implications of the reported plans to flood the immense network of terror tunnels in the Gaza Strip with seawater. The idea is, of course, to flush the terrorists out. But you mentioned that the aquifer is the only sweet water supply in the Gaza Strip, and this would really apparently ruin it for many, many decades to come. So tell us a bit more about this. This idea was revealed by the Wall Street Journal, um, reporting that the IDF had set up five huge pumps in the Al-Shati refugee camp in Gaza City. Now, under normal circumstances, as most people know, rain falls to the ground, percolates into the subterranean storage areas, which are called aquifers. And from these aquifers, we pump the groundwater, and that's what we use to drink. In Gaza's case, there is a single shallow aquifer that runs parallel to the sea, and it's already in a dreadful condition. And we're talking about a very densely populated area and an aquifer that's been so overpumped that the freshwater levels have fallen and seawater has come in. Not to all of it. Um, but add to that sewage and agricultural chemicals, and the World Health Organization says that 97% of the freshwater no longer meets water quality standards. So that even before the war, most Gazans were relying on private water tankers and some water from some small desalination plants to drink from. But that doesn't mean that flooding the tunnels would not have uh, long-lasting effects. And less on Israel, because the seawater flows from Israel to Gaza. Imagine we're talking about a massive network of tunnels that spreads throughout the Gaza Strip, and most of them probably have sandy floors, which are porous, so that we'd have to f keep flooding. 
the key thing would be whether the seawater gets beyond the point where the fresh water and the seawater are already mixing. And if it does, then it could hugely impact groundwater, apparently for generations. And with all that that implies for agriculture and the little bit of ecosystem that's left. Um, but as one expert told me, blowing up the tunnels with all the weaponry inside could also have long-term effects. You think about toxic materials and heavy metals eventually seeping into the groundwater. So it's a question not of what's best, but what's the least worst. Right. And I'm sure there are many, many other environmental impacts. Uh, the war is causing mass destruction and rubble and all sorts of concrete is being thrown everywhere, things of that nature. But even the small pockets of nature in the Gaza Strip are, of course, being affected. What else are you seeing, especially in the Gaza envelope area surrounding the Gaza Strip? First of all, huge areas of burnt and destroyed housing, many, many, I don't know if anybody's counted, burnt out vehicles, massive amounts of waste, uh, compounded by the fact that Israeli heavy military vehicles are all over the place. Yesterday, the government approved the next step in a plan to rehabilitate this area, which they're now calling the Takuma or Resurrection Belt, uh, they announced an 18 million, which is roughly 5 billion budget for the five years, 2024 to 2028. And the environmental advocacy organization, Adam Teva Vadin, has produced a paper saying that there's a unique opportunity here to create a region that can be both economically successful and a sustainable model for the rest of the country. The area is very important for growing food, a lot of the food that Israelis eat. And one of the things that the organization calls for is that the agriculture from this area be given a special status for it to be part of government procurement plans and for it to be labeled to encourage Israelis to buy it. And that's because local produce, not, not only will this provide jobs, obviously, in the in the farms, the packing houses and so forth. But local produce produce is fresher, it's healthier when it's grown with alternative to chemicals and it's cheaper and much greener if you don't have to fly it in from overseas. Uh, if they were to create from the start solar energy in that whole area, it would save on energy costs and greenhouse gases and it would help make the region far more resilient in times of war. Because if you think about it, it's easier to bring the country's energy to a halt if you've got only a few gas platforms that can be bombed, uh, in contrast to if you have tens of thousands of solar panels and tens of thousands of people producing energy. Another thing is that the Gaza border area is, is desert and it's very vulnerable to climate change. And so Adam Tevavadin says, build in strict green building standards from the start and these buildings will be better prepared for increasing heat and also won't have to spend as much on stuff like air conditioning. And they also recommend sorting that huge amount of waste, not sending it all to landfill, so that as much of it as possible can be recycled uh, or or if it has to be uh, used to burnt and used to provide energy. But they say that, it, that, that, that what's required is a lot of thinking out of the box. So that, for example, if you had shredders on site, you could shred this material and use some of it to lay under the asphalt on the new roads. So keep it local, I think, is the message. It's really fascinating. And it is, as you said, a resurrection in many cases in these communities, which were basically destroyed almost completely, totally at least parts of them. And so it sounds to me like what this organization is saying is let's use this as an opportunity and think wisely with an eye to the future. And that's something that is somewhat rare sometimes in this country. So I look, I look forward to seeing what comes of it. 
Uh, there was another report yesterday that came out from the Taub Centre for Social Policy uh, on the impact of the war on the environment, and that echoed some of the things in the Adam Teva Vadin report. Um, take waste, for example. Last month, the government decided to borrow more than $220 million from an environment, environment ministry fund that's earmarked for new modern waste facilities. And that was after it took nearly $450 million last year from the same fund for its ongoing needs. Now, obviously, the more the government dips into this fund, which it's not supposed to be doing, the more any reasonable waste system will be delayed. And we're sending 80% of our waste to landfill, which is incredibly high compared to other developed countries. Look at energy. We're so behind on moving to renewables, and I talked about how renewables could make us more resilient um, because the government's been focusing so heavily on natural gas. But early on in this war, the state closed one of the two main gas production platforms because they were frightened it could be hit by rockets. And they're allowing more oil into the country uh, to be stored in Elat in the south. And they're even ready to bring in more coal and diesel. So, you know, there's a lot of impacts. There's a lot of impacts. The deal to have Jordan build solar fields for Israel and for Israel to provide Jordan with desalinated water has been halted because Jordan wants nothing to do with it because of the war. The report also deals with, and by the way, it is available in English, it also deals with some of the many things that governments haven't done over the years, and we're very used to that, promises being made and not fulfilled, like protecting the country from an oil spill. You know, the government should have passed a law since in 2008, when we had the big tar pollution a couple of years ago, uh, the government promised to pass a law, but nothing's been done. Let's turn to a bit of an uplifting story. And you actually wrote this about a month ago, but we never talked about it on the podcast. And now during the Festival of Miracles, I thought it, it was really appropriate. So extraordinary video footage was discovered from the dashboard of a truck belonging to a farmer called Oz de Vidian from a, a yeshuv, a little village called Maslul. And he, on that horrible October 7th massacre, rescued about 120 young people who were trying to escape as the Hamas terrorists were spraying them with bullets. And he made 20 trips, not short distances. So I want to hear more about Oz, which uh, coincidentally means strength or courage in Hebrew, which he truly, truly exhibited. So tell us about Oz. The context is that Hamas overran that party. It was an all-night party. They overran it at dawn and went on a rampage of murder, spraying bullets everywhere, mowing down 350 or more young people, raping some of them, burning their vehicles, and all this while rockets were raining down from Gaza. Absolute Armageddon. According to Channel 13, which aired the footage, Israeli security forces were absent for seven hours after the shooting started. And during this time, the terrorists held full control of the main arterial road, um, spraying bullets everywhere. This meant that the brave Davidian was one of the only people around to help. As you say, he made around 20 trips in his truck dodging terrorists, passing corpses and burning cars and taking a different route each time to rescue young people. And each one-way journey was between 15 and 17 kilometres, which is nine to ten and a half miles. And during all this time, his wife and four daughters were shut inside their protected room at home on Moshav Maslul. And when he was, you know, people were lauding him as a hero and brave and he said, well, anybody would have done what he did. But of course, what he did was, you know, just absolutely extraordinary. 
a modern day Maccabee for sure. Sue, thank you for joining me today. A great pleasure. Listeners, thank you for joining us today for The Daily Briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have questions or comments about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>